Welcome. My name is Diane Fleed, and thank you for joining us for KCADV's podcast series. Today, we have Marcy Timmerman, who's the Executive Director of Mental Health America, and Beck Whipple, who's with the Kentucky Department of Behavioral Health, and he is a statewide suicide prevention coordinator. And as you can probably tell by Beck's title, today we're going to be talking about suicide prevention. So welcome. How are you today, Marcy? How are you today? Doing well? (laughs) Yes. Ah, Good, good. We've chatted before, so it's nice to see you again in the studio. I call it a studio like this is a grand place. The office, (laughs) the office in KCADV's space. When I was talking with you all just a second ago, I I really wanted to just sort of situate this conversation. I think suicide prevention certainly can be an overwhelming subject, a scary subject. Um, And as I was Mm -hmm. going through your all's kind of presentation and and conversations in past that you've shared when when you go out on the road and talk about this. There was one sentence that you said, Marcy, that really kind of caught me, and it's sort of simple, but it just sort of hit home. And it said, suicide is a big word. The word is hard, and the experience is hard. Yeah. So as we know that lots of folks might be listening into this podcast, but a lot of folks are kind of direct service, frontline advocate workers who are dealing with intimate partner violence, suicide. We'll talk a little bit about warning signs and things that might be a higher risk for folks that are that might consider suicide. I wanted to talk a little bit about just just getting advocates to a place of doing some internal work mm-hmm. as they're preparing to do advocacy. And I think that's been one of the themes through our podcast series is a lot of doing best practices is doing your own internal work. Absolutely. How, right? Yes. Yeah. How are you showing up today? Are you doing well? Are you taking care of yourself? What can you do? What can you prevent? How do you... And again, and I... It's a little bit of a, a catch-22, right? We avoid things, but if we can get to that place of showing up for folks, we actually can do probably better work. Mm-hmm. And the tendency is to retreat a yes. little bit, you know? And and the last thing I'll sort of say with that is I we had a staff meeting. I'm with Greenhouse 17, which is a domestic violence program for Central Kentucky. And we were doing a staff meeting a couple months ago. And one of our advocates, she's been there for a little over two years, her big piece was, no one can die on my watch. Mm-hmm. And I would like to say that that was coming from a, I am here for this person. But it really, if, if knowing her, and I've had other conversations with her, it was really a self-protection Absolutely. piece. Mm-hmm. I can't handle personally if something happens to someone, whether they overdose mm-hmm. or whether they... Um, and I'm going to use the wrong term, not commit suicide. Die by suicide. Die by suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there is such a fear of that. And I think sometimes we have a tendency in our advocacy to go, this looks scary. Mm-hmm. Maybe they need to get out of our shelter space. Maybe someone else needs to deal with this person because mm-hmm. this can't happen here. So can we just sort of couch it a little bit in that conversation if you have any kind of words of wisdoms or ideas or or if it really is this is hard and I can't we can't prevent this so gear up a little bit and then we'll kind of go on to talk a little bit about prevention and warning signs and things. Want to start? Sure. Um <laughs> yeah, so uh, having suicide in your job, job title is a bit always triggering to people or can be triggering. So Marcy's heard me say this probably a billion times, but suicide prevention starts within our own brain and bodies. And so to be able to do suicide prevention, we have to know where we are in relationships to suicide all the time. And so I can't help someone unless I can help myself. 
and I can help some others to the degree in which I can help myself. And so I'm also someone with lived experience of suicide, so it's been a part of my journey. It is still part of my journey. I'm someone that lives with chronic thoughts. And so I have to I have to do me, and I have to know me. And uh, I kind of I talk about it in the sense of I'm in a full-time relationship with my, you know, suicidality with my mental health and it's something that I have to tend to before I tend to other relationships and so kind of like my physical health it is a part of of what I do so you're absolutely right that we can't talk about this without talking about how we care for ourselves while doing it in the face of needing to do prevention or intervention and I think it's important to nobody needs permission right we don't we don't need permission to take care of ourselves but sometimes we do and so there's a pause button. Whatever you're, wherever you're listening to this, there's a pause button. Um, and you can stop and you can come back to it or you can say, hey, today's not the day. And um, yeah, so we always start conversations with this is your space and you have access to, to control it. Because one of the biggest tenets of suicidality is feeling powerless and out of control. And so it's always a message. So even when you're doing prevention, um, we want to model everything that we want to do sorry my phone's ringing yeah we wanted we want to model it's kind of like that parallel process so yeah I think you bring up a, a huge point and um, because the work that we do within ourselves helps us to not have to fix our face when we're sitting with someone who is suicidal right isn't that you know again just to refer back to the to the training that I was talking about or kind of the staff retreat sort of conversation that we had a couple of months ago at our program we talked a lot about this conversation of showing up taking care of self how do you come into the space how do you leave the space at right. the end of the day you know what is yours to own what is not yours to own how do you do your own self work there was a, a KCADV did a conference along with KSAP years and years and years ago but they had those kind of anonymous clickers that you could mm-hmm. get an instant poll you know and it said how many people in the room mostly direct service advocates have experienced domestic violence intimate mm-hmm. partner violence or sexual assault it was like 80 or 90 percent. Mm. So it's much higher than the general public because we're called to do this work, right? Absolutely. You know, right. I'm a survivor of stalking. We are called to do this work yes. because we have some experience and we can connect and we think we have something maybe to offer and share. But we also, maybe I don't, I, I'm saying this anecdotally, but I'm going to presume that caregivers have a hard time doing yes. self-care, right? Yeah. And so a lot of the conversation that we had a couple months ago at our staff retreat was about what I just said, leaving it in the room, what can you do? Are you taking care of yourself? And we would check back in during our weekly case review. So are you implementing any of that? How's that looking? Crickets, just complete crickets. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, some people might say, well, I stop at the gas station and I treat myself to like gas food food as a luxury, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which I think Kristen will be really mad that I just said that, but I'm going to completely out her. But that yeah, was her thing someone wants to do. It's yeah. great. You well, know? Exactly. But, but that's a moment, right? It's yeah. A, yes. That's it's not a, a lifetime decision to make that. No. And I don't mean to say, you know, people need to go on, you know, yoga retreats on top of a mountain if they don't want to, or I don't know, but I, the idea, the conversation, the concept of it was so uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. 
Self-care is radical. Yeah. Yes. It really is. It's not the way we're born or taught or the way society wants us to be. Right? As someone who's living with a disability, like my productivity is not my worth. And even saying that, it still feels false to me. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing this for seven years. Like yeah. I've been sick for seven years. So I understand from that piece, like that's just, you know, my own lived experience. You have to work every day to change your mindset. And self-care is daily. Mm-hmm. It's not your daily routine. It's extra. And I think a lot of people forget that or don't want to implement it, don't have, don't think they have the time. And I'm going to tell you right now, you, you don't have the time not to. Mm-hmm. Thank you for <laughs> saying that. And, and Marcy, yeah. that was the podcast you and I did. Yeah. You know, so, mm-hmm. so I hope that when people pause from this, they might go back and revisit it because I think it's so critical yeah. to this conversation mm-hmm. and all the conversations. Mm-hmm. You have to do the self-work. And then I, and I'm going to say one more thing, and then we'll definitely <laughs> deep dive a little bit into suicide prevention. But I was talking to a, a colleague of mine a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about self-care and stuff. And he, and he said, and I, it really kind of struck a chord with me. He said, I think we do a mistake and talking about self-care a little bit because we don't talk about how hard it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We think it's fluff, like go right. take a mm-hmm. bubble bath, right? Read a book, take your puppy yeah. for a walk or whatever. He goes, self-care, real self-care is doing some honest self-reflection right. and right. deep work of places that we've kind of said, I'm going to put this over here and I don't really want to tackle into it. Right. You might do it with a counselor, you might do it with a therapist, or you might just do it in your own self-work, mm-hmm. but it's not always comfortable. Right. right. And I thought, you know, I think we have talked about this incorrectly, uh, inappropriately, whatever the right word would be. Um, and it, and for folks that kind of dismiss self-care, I think they dismiss it sometimes in a, oh, time to take a bubble bath. That's just a bunch of crap. Right. Or the other folks that go, I'm having a hard time being alone in my thoughts. Yes. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to stay busy and focus on you over here because right. my stuff is really heavy. But when you're yeah. stuck in a position where you don't have a choice. Yeah. But to deal with it, then you're then it's all the thoughts. So dealing with one or two at a time is very helpful. Yes. And I will say to seg kind of back into the suicide prevention that having suicidal thoughts is a sign that you haven't been doing your own self-care, right? Or that maybe a lot of things are going on in your life. And I don't think people realize how common they are. Mm-hmm. I think people are afraid to admit that they've ever felt that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, in public, yep. especially, right? That's my job to be very vulnerable in public. <laughs> yep. Unfortunately, Bex as well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, people don't say those words or don't recognize that, you know, there was a time where I didn't feel like I should live anymore. Right. I didn't feel like I had worth. And I'm like, all of those are suicidal statements. We don't, it's not always I want to die today. Mm-hmm. It's I don't have value. I don't have worth. I don't know where who I am anymore. Those kinds of things can be subtle triggers that something's not right, right. you know? But we've all been through it. I think. I think I know that one in five Kentuckians have lost a, a somebody by suicide. Mm-hmm. So. Actually, 50%. I'm sorry. Yeah. 50% is the stat. So half of Kentuckians know someone who's died that way. Mm-hmm. And then they didn't realize maybe that some of those conversations they had had with that loved one or that friend or that coworker, they'd heard them say, you know, I just get so frustrated. I don't even know I'm here anymore. And they think it's about a task. Yeah. Right. And sometimes it's about them. That's really interesting. You know, and when you said that too about sometimes people are afraid to put it out there, we need to be looking for cues as we're talking with folks that aren't just, I think I could kill myself, but I don't feel I have any self-worth. I don't think I matter. Mm -hmm. But I, I, just to connect it a little bit to intimate partner, and you can tell me I might be making a stretch of a connection. I think sometimes people are afraid to say that they're in an abusive situation. Mm -hmm. And lots of times it's because one, I don't really want to deal with the reality of it. I might be losing control of it if I admit. Admit yes. I'm in a situation that's out of control, and 
people sometimes swoop in and then begin to tell me what to do, and I'm not ready for that. So I could see sometimes that might be true for folks that are maybe having suicidal ideation. If I say it, it's easier for me to say, I just don't feel like I matter, versus saying, I'm having suicidal thoughts, and now you've got people giving you the eye, right? You know, like, uh uh-oh, you know? I I think, you know, knowing the folks that I've known that have done, um, that have worked with folks who have have experienced um, interpersonal violence is, you know, their absolute respect for autonomy, Mm-hmm. And that they know the way to best help someone is to bring them into their own power and to bring them into their own choice. And I and if I had a magic wand, that is the thing that I would wave for healthcare providers mm-hmm. when the, in relation to ship in relationship to suicidality. That that healthcare providers, um, mental health providers, even they you know they kind of deconstruct that suicide equals incompetence. Mm-hmm. Because in my whole experience, I was not incompetent. Right, I had full access to, and and I think I've heard this from many people, is that we have full access to like what's going on, to you know what what's happening, you know, and so I think that that is something that advocates that that do the work that you all do. I, I wish I could copy that skill and and you know kind of sprinkle it and into the the general knowledge of suicide because what happens a lot is we don't say anything we don't talk about it because we know a plus b equals c mm-hmm. if i say the word suicide i'm going to be sent somewhere i'm going to be taken somewhere i'm going to lose my uh, my ability to say hey no that doesn't work for me and so i think there's a lot of work being done in the healthcare mental health like fields to, to kind of undo that because we know, you know, it's harmful. The, the, one of the most uh, dangerous times for suicide is after an inpatient hospitalization, psychiatric. It's like 200 or 300% more likely to die by suicide in the, in the days after yep. an inpatient hospitalization. And so, you know, we have to kind of think about, like, it's not off the table as an option, but is it overutilized as an option? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we were talking about community, or we were talking about self care. And I and I also want to just elevate the need for community care because mm-hmm. as a suicidal person, your brain, your own internal voice, is the voice that is most harmful to you. And so to to have self care is not as much of an option. Because you're your own worst enemy in that moment. True. And so, like, community care is being able to say, Marcy, I'm not okay. And I've said that to Marcy. You know, mm-hmm. like, hey, I'm, uh, today's not the day for me. You know, can we reschedule that meeting? Can we do this? Can we do that? Mm-hmm. And the grace that and mercy, you know, that, that, that folks exhibit, that's community care. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, kind of to your first point, that's being able to show up. And that's be able to sit in the muck with people when it's hard, when it's scary, when it's all of those things. And that's that level of community care that I think, you know, queer people do well, black, brown, indigenous people do well mm-hmm. because of the ways that they've been marginalized. We've been marginalized. And so I think it's important to kind of think about that. And when you think about the, the group that's most at risk for suicide, it's white men. And what, mm-hmm. is, what does their community care look like? Historically not great. Not great. Right. <laughs> Not yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. 
And among your audience, I would think that's <laughs> the women who haven't done the work yet, yes, right? Yes. Who may be in in the work but aren't haven't done their internal work. Yes. I'm worried about that. Well, and also yeah. when we think when we talk about interpersonal violence, right? Those right. those behaviors of that violence is that that isolates in that relationship mm-hmm. that takes away that community care, mm-hmm. and and you know there is risk. For folks who have experienced interpersonal, there is an increased risk of suicide for those who have experienced interpersonal violence. You know, substantial risk. There's, you know, mm-hmm. strong relationship, and I think it is because a lot of that violence is targeted in removing yep. that community support mm-hmm. and setting that internal voice that you talked about. Absolutely. I mean, it's resetting that, trying to reprogram it to a point. At Absolutely. That's the folks that I know. Yeah. Who've been through it? They had to unprogram and and get to where they could trust other people and be in community with others. Mm-hmm. I imagine a lot of your shelters do a lot of work with the community building, and mm-hmm. I think sometimes we forget that workplaces are part of our community. Yes. <laughs> and being able to be vulnerable and present, like when you're like, I can't do a meeting, I'm like, I can't do them sometimes either, right? Yeah. That's a that's a mutual relationship that we've built, mm-hmm. and it's not an unprofessional one. Right. Right. And I think we hear that word a lot. Yeah, it's not related to self. Like when I'm actually trying to set a boundary, and all of a sudden I'm unprofessional. Right. I'm like, I'm sorry, and that's not true. You know, like right. this is the work I do. Thank goodness allows me to be that way. But yeah. workplaces should be that way Absolutely. as best they can. Two things mm-hmm. popped up when you were talking. I love the word muck. I use that word muck a yeah. lot. And, and I, I, I think word. that it is. I think there should be like, you know, all social workers, social justice people, whatever, should have like a one-on-one on just sitting in the muck, muck right? Yeah. Just be <laughs> in the muck and be comfortable right. in the muck. I, and, and how not to absorb it, how to be intentional about not absorbing it, but being, yes. you know, kind of comfortable in it. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And there's a great word. And, and I, I want to give credit to where I got that word in, in particular about suicide is there's a, an incredible documentary called The S Word okay. that's available on Prime. And it is a documentary by lived experience folks. And when we say lived experience, it means that you have had some degree of relationship with suicide. So that might be thoughts, that might be behaviors, that might be an attempt, um, whatever, however you kind of self-describe that. And also in that documentary is the experience of loss, of of suicide loss. So losing a loved one to suicide. Uh, And they talk a lot about, you know, the lived experience those people saved my life. Those people that could show up, you know, for me, it was my sister uh, and my best friends, you know, like they, they were there. And, you know, for those that, that have experienced that loss, that's the thing that's absent a lot of times mm-hmm. for loss survivors of suicide. And, and I'm, again, using that parallel, I assume it's also the case for folks who have experienced interpersonal violence is, you know, when you've alienated you've been alienated from these people. Like, how do you go back and and make that? And, you know, with the loss, suicide loss survivors, you know, it's about, you don't know what to say, so you don't say anything. Right. Mm -hmm. And you're so uncomfortable. Do I talk about that person? Do I bring that person up? You know, and the answer always is yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, the fact that, and, and, and well, the answer is ask them. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. You know, Let's yeah. give them autonomy. Yeah. Yeah. Totally, but I know yeah. what you mean. Don't, yeah. don't presume. Yeah. 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 My uh, a good friend and, and kind of other suicide person that I talked with, his name's Tony Watkins. He calls suicide the zero casserole death. Mm-hmm. We're just gonna avoid that. We're not gonna bring the casserole. That's There's, powerful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. 
It's like a book title. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We've got Muck 101 yes. and then the Zero Casserole <laughs> Funeral. Yeah. Oh. When um, we had another person on, on this series, Dr. Alex Ellswick, and he was talking a lot about uh, substance use, right? So, yeah. And that also correlated a little bit with me of, of what I think sometimes can be a typical response from our programs. And again, mm-hmm. I don't mean to be knocking our programs or advocates. It's just sometimes scary stuff. And sometimes Absolutely. people want to step in and do the best help they can, but sometimes it's not the best approach. So, so he would often say, you know, you've got somebody who might be actively using, struggling with use, and what do we often do? We take their housing away. They remove them from shelter. We mm-hmm. put them in a hospital mm-hmm. someplace. They get out of the hospital. They don't have a good sobriety plan. They don't have anywhere to like. We sometimes create worse scenarios mm-hmm. with our best intentions of trying to get folks someplace where they can be cared for and safe. Right. I, but I but I think we need to do a step back of are we doing this again for our own right. self preservation or really what is best for this person and are we doing it in tandem with this person right. right right is this what this person is wanting and I know Alex and I will kind of battle back and forth a little bit because I'm like well I've got community stuff going on so I can't really have active substance use going on right. in my shelter with you know women men and children but at the same time. It does sort of go on anyways, even if it's a little under the radar, Absolutely. right? It happens in jail, right. so it's, it's happening. somewhere, yeah. So, so let's be honest about it. But mm-hmm. sometimes our response can be very feeling punitive. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes, like even the example, I'd love for you all to go through that a little bit. When you said, Marcy's been there for me, because a few times I said, Marcy, this isn't my day. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the piece is, okay, I recognize that. I hear that. I could see a lot of advocates going, don't let him out of our sight. He needs to be with us at all times. I have to keep an eye on him. You don't get to go tuck back in your room, right? Yeah. Right. And so I'm curious about that a little bit, that kind of balance and advocacy of following the lead or going as a as a person who's done this work a little bit, mm-hmm. I'm seeing signs of reclusing maybe or sitting in your own thoughts. Because a second ago you said sometimes your own thoughts are your worst enemy. Absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I don't know if you have a response to that or it's just a balance. Like, for someone that I know who is having trouble and who sets a good boundary, like it's one time is fine. Mm-hmm. If we're doing it two or three times, we reschedule the same meeting, you know, three times in a week. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's my red flag. Yeah. Right? It's And the tone of voice to use the words that are used. I know that person usually pretty well. And, you know, given our work, and I think with your folks, they live with them, right? Like they're practically there all day. So you get a feel for when someone's off. Right. Right. And creating that sense of community has been really intentional. And Beck's really good at it connecting people to community and and creating one that fosters, you know, it's okay to not be okay, but we're going to check on you. Right. Like, yeah, it's fine absolutely. for you to, to step away and be alone for a while, but you're not alone. You <laughs> yeah. know that. I'm going to text you, right? <laughs> you're not sitting over there and thank goodness he canceled that meeting because yeah. I've got to, you, you know, know, I'm busy. Introvert-wise, maybe. <laughs> yes. Sometimes. Balancing all of our yeah. stuff, right? Yeah, but, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of that, right? Our schedules are full, both right. of us, so yeah. we know that. But I think for, like, taking that outside you know my husband has times where he just needs to be playing a video game by himself for a while Mm -hmm. and that's okay but if he's doing that for you know every night for a week something's really wrong that he's avoiding right right Right? and so and sorry david for mentioning you in a podcast but i'm adding all of my staff so you feel free he he knows how it goes (laughs) (laughs) the the husband of the lady he's rude (laughs) and you know maybe i'm not the one he needs to talk to Right. right and i've been like nope you need to go to you know, have dinner with so-and-so, yeah. you know, whatever it might be. I'm like, what do you need? Yeah, you tell right. me, but you're not going to get away with this for 
a week and a half without yeah. dealing with whatever's going on. So yeah, and yeah. I think to your point, I think it it's is a phenomenal question because I think what happens is anytime you say suicide or anytime that yeah. that spidey sense that you're not okay or or this thing is happening, the person you say that to is automatically going to be put into some kind of hypervigilant, like your brain and your body respond to that, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's intentional, right? Like there's a threat, there's a risk. Suicide is a threat. Suicide is a risk. Yes. And so what we're called to do when we're sitting in the muck is to monitor our own brain and body. Okay. Because what happens is my... What I said to you creates your own crisis, and you're managing your own crisis through managing my behavior. I s- please say that again. <laughs> I see this all the time, yeah. and I very much see it again with our newer yes. staff. Darlene, who's our executive director, will often go. It takes about three years for folks to get some competency yes. in this work because you've had those experiences, Absolutely. right? Like I've, mm-hmm. I, it's it really isn't something I think we've talked a lot about it in our own program. Can we fast track this? Like, why do we have to wait three years <laughs> right. for this to happen? And and probably to a degree you can, but a lot of it is just sitting in the muck. Yes. You got to sit into it. So please say that again. Yes, you you have to like know where you are and you have to control what's happening within yourself so you don't try to control the other person to manage your own internal process. Yes. Because it's harder, you know, we go to let me ex- like control the external when the internal feels like bleh, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that goes to, you know, taking a deep breath, that goes to like okay, what do I need to do? in this moment to be present with this person because in that moment after you've done after you've again because suicide prevention starts with our own brain and bodies right even in response Mm -hmm. and so when you do that then you can step back and say what's you can critically analyze what's the next question here and i can look at all the evidence when i'm not in that reptilian brain of this is a threat. Mm-hmm. And I can say, okay, well, Marcy, this is one time. Like Marcy, what Marcy was explaining. Like, right. oh, this is one time. You can analyze My all the data. My senses are fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but also I think that's a very nuanced question because right. this has been 10 years I've been in a relationship with this experience, this part of myself. Right. And mm-hmm. so I know what, you know what needs to happen, where I'm at. I can tell you if this is my first experience, I'm going to pay more attention. Mm-hmm. Um, or if this is another person's first experience, I'm going to pay more attention because this is a road they haven't traveled yet. They don't know the the, 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 the pits. Mm-hmm. They don't know all the things potentially. And while they're walking that and while they're learning that, there is more of a, more of a need for support. Mm-hmm. And I think too, we can ask Say, hey, Marcy, I'm, you know, I can't make this meeting, just not today. Marcy always, and we're encouraging people always to ask, like, hey, are you okay? Are you thinking about suicide? And if so, where are you at? What can I do? Mm-hmm. To say the word says to me, as the person hearing it, Marcy can say this word. So she's competent and confident enough to say it. Mm-hmm. So therefore, she's going to, to bring that confidence and competency to supporting me. And it opens up the conversation. I love all of that. Mm-hmm. And I and I hope 
you know, I'm going to find out at what point in the podcast this is, 20 minutes point two. And I'm just going to make sure that I, I think all new advocates need to yes. hear that over yeah. and over. And I think it fits beyond suicide, but I think also with substance use and other things. Oh, but, yeah. but in this conversation, which is so like, I don't want to go there, right. I think can be so helpful. You were going to say, I want to go into community a little bit, but, mm-hmm. but you go. Oh, it's fine. I was just going to say, and it doesn't mean that I don't freak out when I say the word. Right. <laughs> I, I still have the reptilian brain saying freak out. Yeah. Right? Like, but I know I'm comfortable with that feeling now. Mm-hmm. And I think the more you say it mm-hmm. out loud, and that's why we make people practice in our right. trainings right. for suicide prevention, is you have to be able to say it because if you can't say it, you can't handle it. Right. And don't ask the question if you can't handle the answer. Right. Because then that person <laughs> has to manage you. Yeah. And, and and that gets to be tricky. That gets rid of that autonomy yeah. piece. And I've had a resident say that, going, kind of worried about your advocate over yeah. there. Like, I think I might have upset her. <laughs> you know, like, you know, yeah. I, I, she yeah. seems to be sort of freaking out. Well, uh-huh. there's a sign. Uh-oh. You yeah. know, that's yeah. not really where we're wanting to go. If well, it, and, oh, please. And and I think, too, like, you, you talked about, you know, kind of going back to that community care. When we think about this, and we think about our response to the word suicide, and we think about our responses to somebody's suicidal experience. Like, my partner is a social worker. She she does work on herself to the degree I've never seen someone do work on themselves. It's it's just I love it, right? And it encourages me to do that too. But we're in an intimate relationship, and her well being is connected to my well being. My well being is connected to hers, and so that community of sport has to be even outside of your most intimate relationships. Because what happens is I don't want to bother her. I don't want to burden her. I I love her. I want to protect her. So I'm not going to say anything about where I am with right. my... And so because we do that, then that keeps that kind of conversation, you know. Yeah, so it, it's important to have people not in your most intersphere in your community care plan but those folks who can access that prefrontal cortex or act as your your thinking brain and and you know i think that's really important because a lot of people think well i have this one person or i can talk to my partner i can talk to my sibling i can talk to my parent but they're they're invested in you they're not able to act in their prefrontal cortex their thinking brain because losing you is a threat to them right it's one of the reasons I I think we have to have advocacy programs yes. because family can serve a purpose, right? But sometimes you just need that objective person who understands, you know, what yes. you're experiencing, barriers mm-hmm. you're experiencing. But but I'm not. It's not quite the same. I have said many times because we're just throwing people out there under the bus. You know, my my aunt had an experience with with an abusive husband. I was terrible. Like I I, I really mm-hmm. wasn't very good because I cared about her. I was like, right. what the heck are you doing? You know, like. I was all those things. I would yeah. never have responded that way in advocacy space. Right. I, right. I wouldn't have. You know, and I had to go, oh my goodness, Diane. Like I had to check myself. But yeah. my immediate response was the was the other. So speaking of community though, so so in our shelter programs, right, that is a big piece of just getting people from crisis to some stability, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 a lot of the work is there. We're not doing deep dive therapeutics. Right. Like we're just right. we're just we're in crisis and we're just bringing mm-hmm. it down. And then we're building a little network, right? Of of here's people that you can support. Let's re- because we've been isolated mm-hmm. many times in abusive situations. Yes. So we're mm-hmm. at the shelter program. So a lot of it is, you know, women helping women, advocates, you know, helping folks, like all that kind of space. KCADB has done a, a phenomenal job in opening 
up opportunities for housing. Mm-hmm. And one of my biggest things, and I really haven't connected it to suicide, but it's like here you've gone from this community shelter network. Mm-hmm. As much as you are ready to get out of there, there's a comfort. At three o'clock in the morning, I can toddle down the hall and I can mm-hmm. talk to the advocate or mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about rent or I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. Even though 40 people might be making me a little kooky, I'm not alone. Now I've said, here's an apartment, you know, you're going to go and good luck to you and go sit in Estill County and be free. (laughs) And they're they're there alone with their thoughts, without a network of people Mm -hmm. around them, maybe, or maybe family, but maybe Maybe. family hasn't been the best. And and so I'm curious what as advocates who are doing housing programming or community Mm -hmm. outreach program when we're not face-to-face with folks all the time, Mm -hmm. is there a little bit of a difference that you would kind of notice in paying attention, building that network, questions to ask that may become very apparent very quickly in a shelter setting because I'm 24-7 with them? Mm -hmm. I mean, my first question would be like, you know, hey, how's it going at work or you know, how are you, are you making friends? You know, something casually like that, maybe less direct than I tend to be, <laughs> but, um, you know, asking fairly good questions about what their community looks like. I think that a lot of people want to talk about, Hey, I met this friend. She's great. And, you know, allow that, that com- conversation to happen. And if that's not happening, start asking questions, right? Like if it's not volunteered, yes. I think just asking a, a gentle question about, you know, are they building that create that creating that relationship? And also, you know, I know that there's people who don't like, you know, assigned community housing, but having community housing available as kind of a step down is really helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know in mental health in general, a lot of our severe mentally ill folks, you know, they live in the same apartment complex because they support each other mm-hmm. by being neighbors. Mm-hmm. And that may not be a permanent answer for all of them in their wellness, but it's a good, solid, they don't need to be in the hospital. They can live independently but they don't want to be alone, yeah. right? And having those centers and those community spaces where they can meet and just be who they are is really helpful. And I think your shelters still offer that a lot of them. And those support groups and those calls and those people they can contact if they're really feeling alone with their thoughts, right, Beck? Because that's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, an apartment by yourself that first night after 40 people being around, that is, that is a moment. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, a couple things about that. You know, that's a great segue to 988. Right. Um, 988 is the new three-digit number that has replaced the 1-800-273-TALK. Um, so, nine eight, you know, putting magnets on those folks' refrigerators yeah. um, that have 988. You know, even simple things like this that, that bring up that environment, you know, that awareness that you're not alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, doing research for this podcast, uh I found that, you know, they, they talked about those that have experienced interpersonal violence, they're kind of most at risk when there's been separation mm-hmm. from that, from the violence, from that, and that aloneness happens because now you're with your thoughts and now you're with your experiences. And, and also that couples with uh, Dr. Thomas Joyner's interpersonal theory of suicide. And so he says that, uh, the, the, the theory says, you know, when a person feels like, they're a burden, and when they feel like they're isolated, if they couple that with hopelessness and helplessness, you know, those three factors, with the, the capacity to override your biology, the, the capacity to, to, you know, inflict violence on yourself, those are really dangerous times. Like, that's the kind of formula, perhaps, for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so, 
one of the things I would encourage all advocates to do, like we've talked about getting comfortable or, you know, it's kind of a weird word, comfortable, right? You don't want to get comfortable with it. You want to, you want to, you know, feel more confident with it or or competent, you know, is to understand the warning signs. And one of those warning signs is isolation. It is that feeling. It's not like I'm alone in this house. It's like I'm alone in this world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, kind of being aware of that as a risk factor, that as as a warning sign, perhaps. And I think the biggest call for folks who do work, you know, with suicide, mental health providers, and those that do advocacy work for, for those who've experienced domestic violence is we need to become multilingual in the warning signs and risk factors and also the assessments. You know, I need to know that, you know, this habit of, you know, maybe markings or bruising or, you know, these kind of things about our signs of interpersonal violence, as much as you need to know that there are situational, behavioral, um, you know, suicide isn't a single factor event. Right. And, you know, suicidality isn't a single factor event. And so the, the more we can become familiar with how these are related, connected, you know, the pr- protective factors that are shared, the risk factors that are shared. Trauma is a huge one, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Having experienced childhood trauma makes you six times more likely to have a suicide attempt. Early childhood trauma probably, you know, increases your risk of being in violent relationships. Those are shared things, right? So what's the shared protective factor around that? Which is so, you know, prevalent again with mm-hmm. the families that are showing up in our shelter programs. You right. know, usually lots of co-occurring things, yeah. lots of, mm-hmm. you know, past childhood, you know, experiences. Um, and so I think we often, that's exactly who we're seeing. And it's, and it's sometimes it's a little bit of, do you even want to tackle this first? And then I have some staff, they're like forensic advocates or something, you know, they're like, oh my God, did you, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, she's making up peanut butter and jelly sandwich but she had a knife in her hand you know like they're like hyper vigilant but again kind of going to that to that space of it and Mm -hmm. and this doesn't really 100% fit into this conversation but your powerpoint has the best like little anecdotal things and like visuals and stuff but you had said something a little earlier and it made me think a bit too it was like the duck on the water right you Uh know it's kind of that appearance of showing up with folks and and being calm and stuff but you're just paddling underneath you know and Mm -hmm. that advocate thing like you can have some of those like because you're just human, like mm-hmm. you're worried and you care and you yeah. all that, but but how do you how do you, how do you fake you, it till you make how it? How do you yeah. fake I mean, it till you, you make know, it? And the duck thing I totally stole from mental health first aid, so yeah. Yeah. give that yeah. citation there. But yeah, yeah. Yes. I think it's a good example of what we do every day. I mean, your advocates are steeped in a lot of kinds of muck, but maybe not this one. Right. Right. It's a different color of mud. Because yes. <laughs> I tend to think of my people rolling the mud. You know, that's yeah. where we are, and that's okay. Yeah. But, and, pe- and people don't yeah. ask. People don't assess for suicide risk because. They aren't comfortable, which we've talked a lot about in in this conversation, which I I, I value. And they also don't talk about it because they don't know what to do next. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're all invited to think about, in a preventive way, when the iron is cold, how do we talk about what happens next? If someone Mm -hmm. is showing signs, if we've done an assessment, if we've done a screener of some kind, what's the pathway to care? What's the pathway to that conversation? And I think that that's an invitation on a programmatic level too. Mm-hmm. And so, I know you're going to say to me, "There's not one right way." No. Like, I, I know you're going. I know you're going to say that. Of course not. But but I but I'm also presuming the one right way is also not hospitalization. No, no. And I think we go to that really fast. Yeah. Um, 
I think the average person does, but I want to stress the 988 group does not. Yeah. And I think that's a myth about them. Like, that might have been what they did 30 years ago. I don't know. Yeah. But I know the training now is we don't go there. Right. Like, that is not an immediate answer unless you are, like, literally holding a gun to your head or some other extremely traumatic thing. And I apologize if I just triggered someone. Um, but, you know, if you're doing that, that's one thing. Right. But the majority of calls, less than 1%, don't even have any kind of response. Right. Like, so, as far as a physical in front of you, fire sirens, that kind of response. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, can we, as we're beginning com- having some confidence and competence in this, and uh-huh. we are beginning to assess and be aware as advocates, and I'm seeing some signs, or you're new coming into shelter, and I'm going to presume I probably should pay attention to this because right. the chances mm-hmm. could be heightened, certainly. Can we talk a little bit about best language, best language, best um, best sort of approach as you're beginning to do that assessment, you're beginning to meet someone, Marcy's new to me, and I'm introducing mm-hmm. you know, myself to her, of how we begin to dig into that. And I know we're kind of coming a little little bit at the end of this conversation, but but sometimes I think concrete yeah. words and, and approaches might be helpful. Yeah, I think, you know, having our folks trained in QPR, mental health first aid, something like that, but then there's also evidence-based screeners that are three questions, mm-hmm. you know, training your folks in what are the, what is the way, because when you do that education about screeners, and screeners are really just invitations to, like, talk about it. And then I always invite people to fix your face. I'm doing a class on that right yeah. now in shelter. It's like, <laughs> yeah. you need social work face because yeah. you are just like, ah, yeah. yes. Yeah. And because they, they're not going to answer the questions. If you, whatever screener, whatever assessment, they're not going to answer it if, if they, if they feel that. So, um, but yeah, that's, that's something I would invite all folks mm-hmm. to think about, but, you know, especially programs is how do you incorporate this into your orientation, to your onboarding, to your mm-hmm. ongoing trainings, all of those things. And practice, 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 practice. Yeah, make it part of the average day. Right. Make it routine as much as you can, especially mm-hmm. with those new folks having yes. a routine screener and you're routinely answering the questions and, and dealing with the, whatever's left. And remember, you're never alone, right, in these as a person who's asking the questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and those screeners are available at MHA. Yes. If people want to know. <laughs> uh, they're all free. You know, they're anonymous, and the person doesn't have to send it to you if they don't want to. Right. Um, they are going to get 988 prop-up, but it's not the only answer for them either. Yeah. MHA has amazing assessment Absolutely. tools and a, and a list of things, you know, so PTSD, anxiety, trauma, like suicide, so so many things. So I hope folks go to your website yeah. in regards to that. And there's a there's a wealth of information and, and resources mm-hmm. and there. And you're never without somewhere else to click. Right. That is relevant to what you're looking at, and I think that's part of the power of the of the website they've built there at MHA National. But you can access it through MHA KY. Yeah. Um, <laughs> either way, but yeah, I think that's part of it is that duck on a pond, that fix your face thing. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. and and then. I- can you repeat again the because I love that too when you said the magnets we were talking about the community yeah. resource. So you can the, go to SAMHSA, um, SAMHSA something nine eight eight toolkit. Google that, yeah. um, and you can get free magnets, free wallet cards, free. We have uh, posters available both in English and Spanish if you want to put those up within your facilities, mm-hmm. um, and those calls are predominantly answered here in Kentucky mm-hmm. by Kentuckians. Um, about seventy to eighty percent of those calls are answered by centers in Kentucky that are 
you know, 988 accredited. Which again is an important piece. Yeah. I mean, it's a community, right? Absolutely. It's like, these are my people they, and, they know, this, and people care. Yeah, they know who, where, when, what is is the resources available right in mm-hmm. your area. Yeah. Um, and that's been a, an important bedrock in our building of our, our 988 system. Yeah, it's been really intentional. Yeah. And included that lived experience so people are not entering with just what I think is best for you is. Yeah. <laughs> right? That's not our tone. And I think that's been a shift yep, since sure. I was younger. Um, and that's an important shift. Yeah. It's an important shift. I am I sit on a housing and homeless intervention and, and people with lived-in experience having them at the table to, mm-hmm. you know, does this bureaucracy that we create, we were talking about that a little bit earlier, does it work for you? Is it easy right. to access? You can have lots of good intentions, but people can't access it if it's right. too hard. And the other thing that I've been wanting to push a teeny bit in, in house, and it goes back to what I said a second ago, most of our folks that are working at these programs do have lived experience. Yes. A little more removed from it. But I think we've been taught so much to, have, to not bring that up like yes. that's mm-hmm. not appropriate to bring your past up but actually I think bringing it forward a little bit because you know what it's like to be a survivor yeah. of sexual assault intimate partner violence stalking suicide yeah. so it's an ethical imperative yes yeah. I think so too I think yeah. it does and it creates that rapport you can I can trust you with this but don't start it with you can't say anything that would surprise me <laughs> so just I've heard it from people <laughs> even in my own field right. my own house I've probably come in on my own mouth right. but I'm like don't do that, yeah. right? If yes. you're going to pull it out, pull it out in an intentional way. Yes. That isn't just, I know better than you, or I've right. been in it through everything, and there's nothing you can say. And I'm yeah. like, no, your face can say that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> One of the things I think in that three years, too, is finding your own language, right? Like, how right. do you convey that that's that's genuine to you? And you're you? going to screw that up, and that's okay. For but, sure. you know, own it. Learn from it right. and get forgive yeah. yourself because yes. you're doing the best you can. Yes. Well, Marcy, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. And back, it's been really great meeting you today. Yeah. So you've been listening to Marcy Timmerman, who's the Executive Director of Mental Health America. Lots of, of assessment. Kentucky. Of Kentucky. Yes. Lots of assessments, lots of resources, lots yes. of things. And Beck Whipple, who is a statewide suicide prevention coordinator. Definitely pay attention to 988. Go mm-hmm. onto the SAMHSA website. Get lots of information. Share that widely. Um, I'm going to, again, have uh, Miguel tell us what that one time frame is because I hope people kind of go back to that space as advocates. I think this conversation has really been one of the my most favorite as far as practical, helpful, mm-hmm. just having this talk because I think it's such a scary thing for our folks to do and we overlook it, I'm afraid, you know, yes. so... Thank you. My name is Diane. You've been listening to KCADV's podcast series talking about suicide prevention. You've been listening to the Zero V podcast series, formerly known as KCADV. This podcast series discusses issues and concerns directly regarding the experience of intimate partner survivors. Follow us on social media and you can listen to the series where you currently listen to your podcast.